Beloved, go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Isaiah 51. We're in the home stretch of Isaiah. Um, about four and a half months worth of home stretch. Um, so let's look at these words tonight. Um, I want to read, just, we're going to look just the first 11 verses. Um, because there's a lot in this text, but we can't, you know, I, I couldn't do justice to an entire chapter in one night. So let's look at these um, first 11 verses and then we'll pray. And we'll get into this text together tonight. It's the word of the Lord. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness we found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands wait for my hope, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Awake! Awake! Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Mm. Let's pray together. Lord, how we long for that day. How we long for that day, like Les was praying. Lord, that day in which we behold you face to face and we will be absent, Father, the sorrow and the sighing of sin, both in its presence and in its desire, that you will be our all in all, that finally we will gaze upon you with upturned faces and, Lord, be in awe and worship you and give you the honor Lord God, that you so deservedly should have and that we can give only a faint semblance to right now. Lord, we're grateful to you that you remain faithful to your promises because if you did not, Lord, there would be no hope for us. There would be no hope for us. We falter and we fail. Father, there, our, our lives are, are still stained with sin Lord, if it were not for your faithfulness, we would not at all endure. So thank you, Lord God, that you have committed yourself to us with a steadfast and an unchanging love. 
Thank you that, that you have made us your delight. Thank you, Lord God, that the promise of, of the joy of heaven, Lord, is not a, a fleeting hope, but a sure one. And so, Lord, as we hear your word tonight, as we contemplate these truths, Lord God, that you had Isaiah penned by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that, Father, these words would, they would sink deeply into our souls, that our hearts would be plowed up soil, that, Lord God, you would bring forth um, fruit that lasts, fruit that is real, Father, fruit that is genuine and pleasing to you. Father, I pray that you would just meet with us tonight, that your presence would just envelop us in this place, that, Lord God, you would give me grace by your Spirit to teach your Word accurately and faithfully, and, Father, in the unction of the Spirit of God, and that, Lord, the hearts of all of us in this room would be ready to receive it. God, we would be earnest to hear what you, our God, has to say. So open up your truth to us, and open our hearts to you, and be glorified in our midst, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, beloved, Isaiah's prophecy is kind of ramping up, okay? It's ramping up as we are pressing onward to this final servant song that starts in chapter 52 and in verse 13 and goes all the way through chapter 53. And, and that servant song that describes just how it is that the servant will redeem his people, right? And, and Isaiah concludes that last song by saying he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered for the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We're coming up on that great final song, but we still got a little ways to go, right? A little bit of ground to cover before we get to that final song. And so here's what we're going to do tonight. I decided to look, I decided just for us, our focus to be on chapter 51 and these first 11 verses. And, and they're welcome ones, right? I, I just want to say these are really welcome verses to hear because instead of speaking to the hard-hearted and the stiff-necked and the doubting and the fearful and you just uh, the unappeasable, right? Those, those, those lost you know, exiles in Babylon. Tonight, in these words that we look at, the Lord speaks to His believing remnant and they're words of encouragement, man. They're words of promise. They are, they are, they are words of just hope, great hope, right? And, and then... And then it's followed by this earnest plea starting in verse 9 on the part of the remnant for the Lord to do exactly what He's promised, right? It's a plea that really encapsulates or should encapsulate the heart and the desire of every faithful believer whose hope is in the grace and the steadfast love of God. So I just want us to look at this. We're going to look at it in two sections. The first section, which is the Lord's promise to His people, right? Verses 1 through 8. And I just want you to look with me again at verse 1. The Lord says, listen to me. You who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from whence you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Now I want us to think about this for a second, right? Here we are with this repeated refrain. Listen to me, right? Behold, hear my words, right? Over and over again, we're hearing this same exact sort of refrain by the Lord. And again, we got to be reminded of this, that to listen to the Lord doesn't mean to just have sound waves pass into your eardrums and activate your eardrums and send, you know, electrical signals to your brain. That's, that's not what it means to, to hear the Lord. It means to, it means more than just to hear the, what, what God is saying, but to hear his words with effect, right? To hear and believe, to hear and establish your life and certain hope upon those words, to hear those words and respond with confidence and faith, to hear God's words and to obey him, right? 
And that's not anything new. We're familiar with that. Here in, in live is really the theme of the Old Testament. We've seen it repeatedly in Isaiah. And it was the theme, one of the themes of Christ's ministry as well. You remember these words that John records for us that Jesus said in John chapter 5 and starting in verse 24 when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, right? Perk up your ears. Truly, truly, right? I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life, right? Hear and live. Hear, respond, and live, right? You remember that the Lord Jesus brought this out in, in Luke chapter 6, right? When he talks to the, to the crowds and he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great, right? There's a reason that God has this repeated refrain throughout Scripture. Listen to me, hear and live, right? It's, it's for the sake of our eternal souls, right? That's the consistent theme of the Word of God. Hear and live, right? But here he's speaking not to those that have refused to listen, but to those who gladly receive His Word, right? And the very fact that the Lord is speaking to a believing remnant, to the believing remnant, to the people who want to hear His Word and live, is evident by the way that He describes them here with two phrases, right? Two just great phrases that the Lord applies to them. These two phrases, you who pursue righteousness and you who seek the Lord. Who, you who pursue righteousness and you who seek the Lord. Can I tell you what? That is probably the most concise and apt description of a true believer anywhere in Scripture. That's it right there. He calls them first, you who pursue righteousness. I want you to get the picture of this. The idea of pursuing is to doggedly follow after, right? It's to, it's to lay hold of. A better phrase is to seize as your own, right? It's not just to be, you know, sort of lackadaisical and, and sort of passive about, about the pursuit of righteousness. It's to run full bore and tackle it. That's the idea here, right? And make it your own. Righteousness here speaks of that which is, is just and it's good and it's upright, right? What is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. And so the idea is that this faithful pursuit of righteousness is the, is the pursuit of righteousness with God, first of all, that comes by faith, right? That's where, that's where righteousness is gained, by faith in the Lord, right? And then laying hold of a righteous manner of life that pleases the Lord as a result, Right? The two have to go together. It's not just have the profession and, and have, you know, no works. Nor is it have a bunch of good works, but no real possession or profession of the Lord. No real, no real faith in Him. The two are married together, right? It's faith that evidences itself in works, correct? So that's the heart of this. And then he calls them, you who seek the Lord. And I love that phrase because what it describes here is a heart towards God that seeks to find Him. 
that, that, that seeks to know him, that seeks his face, right? That's the idea here. That, that, that you long for his pleasure and his approval above all else. The idea is that the Lord does, doesn't hold a place of importance in your life. It's that the Lord holds primacy of place in your heart and in your mind and in your life. He's not one among many priorities, right? We've all got a list of numerous priorities, don't we? There's all, and, and depending on you know, what's of most pressing nature, we, we have a sliding scale on those priorities, don't we? Right? Our priorities don't stay the same from day to day. Christ's primacy in our hearts, God's primacy in our lives must remain in that place of singular and unimpeachable importance every single day of our lives. That's what he is getting at here, right? God stands above everything else. And these twin phrases describe, you know, the people of God, spiritual Zion, the holy city of God's people. And it's this pursuit of righteousness. And it's this seeking the Lord that describes the people of God above all else. It's like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, right? When he said, you know, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And then he goes on to talk about a variety of different things. But then he says, but seek first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you, right? But here's reality, right? Here's reality steps in. Practically speaking, the temptation to be anxious in Babylon for these exiles was real, wasn't it? The temptation for us to be anxious in modern Babylon is real, is it not? And so the Lord reminds them of two things next. He reminds them, I want you to see this now, of both the power and then the scope of His grace. Of the power and then the scope of His grace. He tells them, look to the rock from whence you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug, right? And not leaving us in you know, suspense as to what that is, he explains exactly of whom he is speaking in verse 2. Look what he says. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. Now look what he does here. Okay, The Lord points him to Abraham. Who is Abraham? What's he known as? The father of faith, right? And he points him to Sarah. What's Sarah famous for? Being barren and then giving birth to the child of promise, Isaac, right? And so he uses them here as a picture. He uses them here as an illustration, right? As to demonstrate that they, in fact, are the children of God through the same faith as Abraham. And they are children of God by the same promise given to Sarah. In other words, the believing remnant are the spiritual offspring of Abraham and Sarah, right? The Lord points to the remnant to consider his grace towards Abraham and Sarah. Think about it. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of the idolatry of Ur of the Chaldees by sheer and unmitigated grace. Did he not? There was nothing in Abraham to commend him to God. Nothing at all. And people try to trump up these different things like, oh, God was looking to and fro on the face of the earth and, and He was trying to find someone that, that might esteem Him above all other gods. And lo, His eyes fell on Abraham and He said, there is a man who is just in all His doings. 
I mean, that is such eisegesis, man. Like, just read it into the text, buddy. You know, keep going. You know, don't stop there, right? That's not how it was at all. Think about it. He gave Abraham and Sarah the child of promise by sheer and unmitigated grace, even after Sarah laughed at it. Ha ha ha. Shall I have this pleasure? Yes. You will. Right? Even after she laughed about it, he gave to them the child of promise by sheer and unmitigated grace when they were beyond the power of human conception, right? There was absolutely nothing to commend Abraham and Sarah and everything to condemn. But you know what the difference was? Abraham heard God's voice and he believed him, even against human wisdom. And it was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And why did Abraham believe? Because of the grace of God. That's why. And that was true of these remnant of believers in Babylonian captivity as well, right? I mean, here they were. When, when, when God called Abraham to believe him, right? There were no great signs. No wonders. Nothing. And here are these Babylonians. Here's the promise. I'm going to restore earthly Zion, and but I'm but I'm going to make you heirs of heavenly Zion. Well, where's the problem? Where's the where's the sign of that? Where's the wonders being done? There was nothing. They believed without seeing, and so it was true of Abraham. His righteousness before God was true of them also. The power of God's grace to save Abraham by faith in the Lord's promises. Listen, that power hadn't abated. It's not like God had this great power. It's not like God's like a man, you know? Like when I was 30, I was strong. At 55, not so much. It's not the way it is with God. What was true of the rock and the quarry, it was true of, the, of this remnant. And then he, then he speaks to the scope of his grace. How he blessed and he multiplied Abraham, right? God's grace was not only for Abraham, but for all of his offspring who shared in the same faith as he had. But not only that, for all the nations of the world, right? As we've seen repeatedly in Isaiah, the promise of God was indeed fulfilled in the believing Jews, right? But God's mercy wasn't confined to them. In fact, we had this testimony, remember, from Paul, and remember back in Romans chapter 4, whenever we were there, I don't even have a clue. It was a long time ago. But when he speaks of, the salva- of salvation by grace, and he says these words in chapter 4, starting in verse 16, he says, That is why it, salvation, depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, that's the Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, get this now, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God started with one man. He blessed him and he multiplied him. 
so that he would be the father of all who believe. And Abraham believed God and he was rewarded. And Paul goes on to say in that same, in that same passage in verse 22 through 25, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What's he saying? Grace and salvation and faith go hand in hand in hand. So keep on believing. Keep remaining in the faith. That's the idea here. And then he gives him a glimpse of the great day to come. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. Here's this promise of God saying, Look, the restorative power of the Lord will be such that it will seem as if all of this desolation never took place. And there will be only joy and gladness and thanksgiving and the voice of song. That's the glorious future for Zion, right? For the people of God that the Lord promises to all who trust in Him. But here's the great part about that. Even right now, right? In the waste places and the wilderness of this world, the Lord gives to those who trust in Him joy and gladness, doesn't He? We live in thanksgiving. We have the voice of song, right? We're singing people. Right now, as recipients of God's grace, no matter how dark the days or difficult the struggle, the light of the Lord makes His presence with us known and it satisfies our souls as we endure for the day when our faith becomes sight. And so all of us, you know, of heavenly Zion, of spiritual Zion, can say with Paul, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The great hope is not fulfilled in the repopulation of earthly Zion. The great hope is not fulfilled in any of the blessings that we richly enjoy in this earth that are of a temporal nature, right? You know what makes us different from animals? We can actually think about that which is most important. To an animal, what's most important is right in front of their face. Right? I could make to beef, my dog, a promise of, you know, a tour of all of the local farms and feasting at each one of them with all of the animals, you know? And if he could understand me, the truth is, as soon as I set a bowl of dog chow in front of him and say, make your choice, you know what he picks. You've seen this with little kids. Have you seen those videos of the little kids where they stick them in a room, where the dad sticks them in a room with like a cupcake in front of each one of them? It's like, all right, you can have... One cupcake now, but if you wait until I come back, you can have five cupcakes. Not one kid ever gets the five cupcakes. Not one. And if there's two of them, the the wait time is like, 
it's split. It's like halved, you know? Like they look at one another like and smile and then they go for it, right? Look, man, the great hope, again, is not fulfilled in transient things. The picture is grander and it's, I should have just stopped with the beef illustration. The picture is grander and it's greater. And look, the Lord makes it very clear to the believing remnant in the next verse. Look what he says. He says, give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. Again, listen to me, listen to me, right? For a law will go out from me and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. He says, give me your attention, right? Hear and believe this. Hear what I'm going to say to you right now. There's a law, a doctrine, an instruction, a body of prophetic teaching, divine truth that is going to come forth from the Lord himself, right? And it's going out to all the peoples of the earth. Like Habakkuk prophesied, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And God promises like, to establish or to set his justice, his righteous dealings with mankind as a light to draw all peoples to himself. What's the justice he's speaking of? The justice that the servant brings. The justice that the servant accomplishes, right? The justice of the Lord is established fully in the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, think about this. We've talked about this frequently, but it's so important to to remember all the time that the ministry of Christ, in particular, his sacrificial atoning death, it not only establishes the love of God, but it establishes the justice of God, right? And the fact that God's love is just. All sin gets accounted for, either on the Lamb of God or through the eternal destruction of those who reject Him, right? God's justice is upheld. His holiness is honored. And sinners are saved by grace and God's love is magnified, right? And then he reads, he says this in verse 5, My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out and my arms will judge the people's The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. The Lord Lord tells him, look, my righteousness draws near. My arm, right? Who's he speaking of? Again, he's speaking of Christ. This isn't the hand. This is the arm. Christ, the arm of the Lord. He's speaking of the righteous servant. And really kind of reflecting back on the way that he's described in Isaiah chapter 11. Remember the the way that he was described there? I'll read it to you really quickly. Starting in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. Not by the externals or decide disputes by what his ears hear, by what men say. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I love that. Prophetically, the Lord is speaking here of his, of his salvation is going out, not just to the Jews, but to the ends of the whole earth, right? The, that's the whole coastlands analogy, right? And they wait for the arm of the Lord. They wait for the power of God unto salvation. They wait for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But don't miss what God says here. Yes, he will send forth the arm of his salvation. But he will also, with his arms, judge the people's. And he'll do it through his servant. 
God will judge not only the Jews, but all the earth in righteousness by or through His servant. It's exactly what you remember Paul said on Mars Hill. Remember when he was debating with all the philosophers and, and the debaters of the age? Remember that? And they had all their various different gods that they gave homage to, right? And after speaking to them the truth, he says to them, look, the times of ignorance God overlooked. He was patient. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God's righteousness and his salvation draws nigh to all people as does his judgment. And it's coming quickly. Look what he says here. To encourage the exiles, to encourage us, he says, verse 6, lift up your eyes to the heavens. And look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. This is all going to wear out. He says, you know, look at the heavens and the earth. They seem permanent. They're not. The heavens are going to vanish like smoke. The earth is going to wear out. Every single person is going to face death. Unless Christ returns, right? But the salvation of the Lord, His redemption, it's going to be forever. And here's why. It's because His righteousness will never be dismayed. Or the idea here is His his righteous decree, that word dismayed really means, can never be broken. There's, There's no fine print to God's decree. It can never be broken. And so he says, he says to these exiles that are in Babylon, to us that are in modern day Babylon, in verse 7 and 8, he says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations he gives this encouragement this exhortation to these believers in exile right those who get this now who know God's righteous decrees right who know his righteousness who lived seeking to please him and whose law is written upon their hearts sounds an awful lot like the new covenant doesn't it he says look don't fear the reproach and reviling of those who refuse to believe Don't give an ear to them. Don't think for a moment that they have any points that you need to consider. Don't be discouraged or dismayed by their unbelief and don't be shaken by the scoffers because their end is soon. It's like, you know what? We we know this psalm a lot, but I wonder how much time we actually spend meditating on it. One of the greatest psalms in all the psalms is Psalm 1. And, And the words there are awesome. You know, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Can we just be honest and say that some of the greatest downfalls among professing believers have occurred because of that very thing? You give ear to it. You give credence to to the scoffing and the counsel of the wicked. And then what happens? 
Now, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Right? The man who delights, the woman who delights in the law of the Lord has a fruitful life in the Lord. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So don't be concerned about the revilings. Don't be concerned about what they say. Look, they're unbelieving. The unbelieving will be consumed in their unbelief. Speak the truth to them. Pray for their conversion. Absolutely evangelize them. But do not be dismayed by their scoffing. Don't. Only know this. God will vindicate His righteous actions forever. And His salvation will extend to all generations who love and believe and hope in Him. That's good news for us who are parents, isn't it? Man, we face a world that is earnestly desiring to force our children to capitulate to its arrogance and wickedness. And they're in the world much more than they are with us. Grandkids too. Isn't that true? And yet, the promise is, that God's salvation will extend to all generations who love and believe and hope in Him. Our hope is in God's faithfulness. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be lazy and unaffectual with our kids or our grandkids. But it is to say that God is faithful. And He always saves those of whom He's promised salvation. And so therefore we need to live in a righteous and a hopeful expectation of the great vindication of God and of His servant. Not know about you, but as I'm reading through Isaiah, right, there are two apostles and their works that continually are rolling through my mind. One of them is the Apostle Paul, because he loves to quote from Isaiah, right? He, you know, Isaiah, I think, was his favorite of the prophets, probably. And the other is Peter, because the themes are so similar He also quotes from from Isaiah, but the themes are remarkably similar. And when I read this text, I'll tell you what immediately I think of. And this is a long quotation. You might want to turn in your Bible and look at it with me. But I cannot read these verses without thinking of Peter's words at the end of his second epistle. In 2 Peter chapter 3, and starting in verse 1, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of closing down his epistle, right? And he says, he says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, 
And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and it perished. God brought judgment. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who's that you? The elect exiles. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. It's the same theme as what Isaiah has been teaching, as God's been saying to us through Isaiah in these first eight verses. Right? There's a promise, hope that's going to be yours one day. So live like it. Believe it. Don't take it for granted. Don't treat it lightly. He makes this glorious promise to the remnant God does. And then all that's left here is this earnest plea for the Lord to do just as He has promised, right? There's a break here. At verse 9, it's no longer the Lord that's speaking through Isaiah. Now it it is the people. It's the remnant, right? Or maybe Isaiah. But look what he says, starting in verse 9. Awake, this is to the Lord. Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now here's the thing. Whether these are the words of Isaiah in response to the Lord's promises, you know, as he's writing all this, or if this is pictured as the collective voice of the remnant is unclear and it's a matter of debate among scholars and I'm not going to get into the debate because they've spilt enough ink on it. What is not debatable, however, is that this should be the heart of every believer. These words are reflective of a longing and a believing heart. These are words, consider them, that look to the past, right? The past things that God has done as fuel for faith in the future, right? In the present and in the future. When he says you're awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. The idea is rise up. Rise up now. Do it. Do all that that God has promised. It it reflects really a holy impatience. Do you ever feel like that? Like you got a little holy impatience? 
for something that you're longing for, you're desiring, you know it's the will of God, and it just hasn't happened yet. And so you keep praying earnestly, and you do it with one eye open, kind of hoping you can see, you know, the, the, the fulfillment. Like there's a, there's, a, there's a holy impatience here, right? And, and, it's, and it's beautiful. And, 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 you know, though there are a lot of obstacles, right? Things that are impossible to overcome in human strength. The strong arm of the Lord has not lost any of its ancient power, right? The one who mastered the waters of the great deep at creation, the one who parted the sea at the exodus, right? He is surely able to bring his people to their final joy. Rahab and the dragon are used in the Old Testament as symbols for those who oppose God and were defeated by his mighty power. In fact, the dragon reference there can also be an allusion to the devil, right? And his fierce opposition to the people of God from the beginning. But the idea here is that they look on this, these past things that God has done. And for these guys, it wasn't even in their lifetimes. They look at those things and they use it for faith right now. Now, what's the lesson for us? The lesson is this. When your faith is waiting, when it's wavering, when it's tested, consider. Stop, just stop for a moment and stop your mouth and consider for a moment the many ways in which God has demonstrated His sovereign faithfulness to you. And you do that and you dwell on that you think about His faithfulness in your life and in the life of your brothers and sisters in Christ and in the lives of the faithful throughout Scripture, and it'll give you faith for the day. It'll give you faith for right now. Because the point here is that just as no enemy could prevail against God in the past, listen, no enemy is going to prevail against Him in the future. God's undefeated. He will always be. God's got a future for His people and that future is going to be glorious. The ransomed of the Lord shall come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to spiritual Zion. They'll come with singing and exultation in the mercy of God and they'll be marked by an imperturbable joy, right? Even in our best times of joy right now on this earth, sometimes we're perturbed, aren't we? But there'll be an imperturbable joy and an everlasting worship and a gladness that can't fade, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. In fact, the idea is here they'll be driven away from the very presence of the people of God. There'll be no place found for them. And all will be joy and delight forever. And that's the heart of this plea. Do it now, Lord, right? In fact, I was thinking about this. This is, this is really, you know, the, the heart of this plea is, oh, Lord, hasten the day. And the Bible, you know, interestingly enough, closes... With a similar cry, doesn't it? The Lord Jesus, right, who testifies to the truth of God, declares in Revelation 22, verse 20, Surely I am coming soon, right? And what's our, heart, what's our heartfelt reply? Amen, come Lord Jesus, right? The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And the idea is until that day, amen. That's our supreme hope. And until that hope is realized, we must live with expectancy and confidence. I'll close with these words from Scott Hafeman. He captures this perfectly. He says, Hope in God's promises, therefore, is not a wishful longing, but a faith-filled confidence for the future. It is simply impossible to trust one of God's promises 
and not anticipate its coming true. To know God is to trust Him. And to trust God is to trust His promises. And to trust God's promises is to be sure of their fulfillment. This assurance concerning the future, anchored in God's promises, is what the Bible calls hope. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just want to bless you and thank you for these much-needed words for all of us and for my own soul, Lord God. Thank you that by your divine providence, this was the text for this week. Lord, I pray that that you would make us a joy-filled people of hope at all times. That, Father, we would not become dismayed or discouraged. That, Lord God, we would not become downcast. And when we do, we'd speak to our soul and say, Soul, believe in God. Believe. Have faith in the one who is faithful. Hold fast to the one who endures forever. Delight in his steadfast love that is unchanging. Father, thank you for this much-needed tonic to our souls. I pray that these words would, they would reverberate in our hearts and in our minds over the next several days. That, Lord God, we'd really think about them and take them to heart and look with expectancy and with confidence and with anticipation to the day when the looking through a mirror dimly is over. And we see you face to face. Let us live in anticipation of that day. In lives of faithfulness and obedience and service and worship and surrender. And let us testify of your goodness and of the glory of your gospel to a blinded and needy world. Thank you, Lord God, for these, my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would bless them richly and abundantly. Bless them, Lord, in ways that can't be quantified by measures on this earth. And Father, with the blessings that come from your hand that are ours in Christ. To you be all praise and all glory, now and forever, now and forevermore. Amen.